Welcome once again to A Pain in the Glass podcast. This is your host, Bill Shearhart. A Pain in the Glass podcast is sponsored by Canada Curling Stone of Kamoka, Ontario. Well, it's time for more pebble water. This time, pebble water 8.0. And for people who have been following the podcast, first of all, thank you very much. You'll know that every once in a while, I produce a podcast with topics that I found interesting and topics that I think you might find interesting as well. And there are four of them today. The first one is something that I refer to as ready to compete. And it's about teams that perhaps started out in a recreational environment, but have got the competition bug and they might enter playdowns or go into some sort of serious bond spiel situation. So what do they need to do to cross the Rubicon, so to speak, to go from recreational team, serious recreational team, to a competitive team? Well, that's what Ready to Compete is all about. The next topic is something that I came across, and unfortunately, I could not find the author. It was not me. And it's simply entitled, The Obituary of Common Sense. I then move on to one of my favorite topics, the learning curve. I think most people understand that when you are learning a new skill and you make changes, mechanical changes, probably the performance is not going to be so great. And there's that tendency to kind of throw up your arms and, well, this isn't working. Why do I stick with it? Well, you could be in the trough of what is commonly referred to as the learning curve. Well, I've got a little bit of a different take on the learning curve. So that's what that segment is all about. And then I finish the podcast with something that my friend Guy Schultz from uh, Calgary, when when I was the national development coach there, uh, struck up certainly a friendship with with, uh, Guy. He has co-authored some books on curling, and I have uh, been in one or two of those books. Great respect for his uh, abilities in a number of areas, and he wrote something called The Intangibles, and I will read it for you here, and thank you very much, Guy Schultz. So let's get started with Ready to Compete. It's game time. You're ready to compete. At least you think you are. But you're not exactly sure if you measure up to the task. Well, I've got something for you to think about, and it's in the form of, well, a David Letterman top ten list for those of you of a certain age who remember David Letterman. And here they are. Advice number one is this. The ice and the stones, when you and your teammates step onto the playing surface and ultimately place your hands on the handles of the stones, have absolutely no idea who you are, what you've done in the past. They've not read your press clippings, or more accurately for junior, your social media entries, what your skill set is, who's coaching you, etc. And it doesn't matter. Advice number two. Your value as a teammate is going to be equal to, if not more important, to the success of you, singular, 
and plural than your value as a curler. So let me say that one again. Your value as a teammate is going to be equal to, if not more important to the potential success than your value as a curler. Number three, you can never leave your skills at home, but the right attitude, and that's always a choice, can be absent without leave. Advice number four, the only people that really matter when you step onto the ice are your teammates. Number five, if you want to focus on something at the event, do everything you're able to ensure that your teammates have a great competition. And when you do that, by the way, your team will become greater than the sum of its parts. Number six, you will not be nervous if you're convinced you've done everything possible to prepare. Athletes get nervous when they know deep down they have not done everything possible to prepare. Number seven, look after your real self. By that, I mean your everyday personal life issues. And if you do that, your performer self will look after itself. Number eight, as a team, only discuss and deal with issues over which you have almost complete control, such as food, sleep, travel, etc. And don't even entertain a second thought of concern and talk about those aspects of the competition for which you have almost no control. For example, officials, format, rules, etc. Advice number nine. Know all the rules that govern your participation in the event. The Player's Guide. And number 10, and I'm saving the best for last. Be the most dangerous team at the event. The most dangerous team is not the team that enters the competition with a sterling one-loss record. The most dangerous team is not the team with a great pedigree. Example, the most talented athletes. The most dangerous team by default is not the team coming from a large metropolitan area with lots of resources at hand. The most dangerous team is not the team with the largest entourage of stakeholders. The most dangerous team in the competition is the team with the highest degree of trust in its skill set, both individual and team, and the lowest degree of expectation. Now, don't misunderstand the previous sentence. It does not refer to confidence and trust. It refers to focus. Focus on the process that leads to performance, not the outcome. And as you can see, I saved that best piece of advice till last. Be the most dangerous team in the event. Today, we mourn the passing of a beloved old friend, Common Sense, who has been with us for many years. No one knows for sure how old he was since his birth records were long ago lost 
in bureaucratic red tape. He will be remembered as having cultivated such valuable lessons as knowing when to come in out of the rain, why the early bird gets the worm, life isn't always fair, and, well, maybe it was my fault. Common sense lived by simple, sound financial policies. Don't spend more than you earn. And reliable parenting strategies. Adults, not children, are in charge. His health began to deteriorate rapidly when well-intentioned but overbearing regulations were set in place. Reports of a six-year-old boy charged with sexual harassment for kissing a classmate. Teens suspended from school for using mouthwash after lunch. And a teacher fired for reprimanding an unruly student only worsened his condition. Common sense lost ground when parents attacked teachers for doing the job they themselves failed to do in disciplining their unruly children. It declined even further when schools were required to get parental consult to administer aspirin, sun lotion, or a sticky plaster to a student, but could not inform the parents when a student became pregnant and wanted to have an abortion. Common sense lost the will to live as the Ten Commandments became contraband, churches became businesses, and criminals received better treatment than their victims. Common sense took a beating when you couldn't defend yourself from a burglar in your own home, and the burglar can sue you for assault. Common sense finally gave up the will to live after a woman failed to realize that a steaming cup of coffee was hot. She spilled a little in her lap and was promptly awarded a huge settlement. Common sense was preceded in death by his parents, truth and trust, his wife, discretion, his daughter, responsibility, and his son, reason. He is survived by three stepbrothers. I know my rights, someone else is to blame, and I'm the victim. Not many attended his funeral because so few realized he was gone. If you still remember him, pass this on. If not, join the majority and do nothing. The Learning Curve I'm very careful to avoid personal statements. In fact, I frequently say that in curling terms, Bill Shearheart ceased to exist some time ago. I'm part of me, of course, but with liberal amounts of all the national coaches, athletes, and instructors with whom I have come in contact over the years. If I do make a purely personal statement, I preface it with the term red flag. Well, this is a red flag episode. Not all my colleagues agree with me on this one, but many sports psychologists do. You see, it has to do with something called the learning curve. I think most people are familiar with the term. It postulates graphically that when one is confronted with a new learning skill, 
there will be a drop-off in performance while the skill is being mastered and implemented. But once learned, the level of performance will be higher than before. The dip in the learning curve is the crabgrass in the lawn of learning. Fighting through the dip is clearly the toughest part of learning that new skill. But is that dip a necessity? Well, consider the case of an infant of about one year of age in a traditional family environment. For the sake of brevity, let's assume a male infant. His method of locomotion, at that stage of his development, of course, is crawling. Then, one day, he notices that he is the only member of the family who moves in that manner. He watches carefully as other members walk from place to place. On the spur of the moment, he gets up and walks. A little unsteady at first, but within minutes, he seems to have mastered the skill. Has he forgotten how to crawl? Oh, of course not. Anyone, if required, could crawl once again. Did the skill of crawling interfere with the learning of the new skill? I would suggest that it certainly did not. There appeared to be little or no dip in the learning curve. Why? And here's the key point. He found a better way to accomplish the task. To field test this position, I ask parents if they can recall the exact moment a son or daughter walked for the first time. Not surprisingly, a large majority can, and I am one of them. With due respect to my daughter Susan, for whom I honestly cannot recall the incident, I can clearly remember the moment my son, Mark, got up and walked. He was in the lobby of the Royal York Hotel following his baptism by his uncle, who was a clergyman in a downtown Toronto church. We had gone to the Royal York for a post-baptism brunch. In the lobby... Mark spotted a window display which caught his fancy. To our amazement, rather than crawling across the floor, he got up and walked, never to crawl again. I asked my own mother if she could recall the moment I walked, never to crawl again. She said she could and described it to me. I'll save you the details except to tell you that it involved a chocolate chip cookie. You see, some things really do never change. I suggest, then, that time spent in the dip of the learning curve or the presence of one in the first place is directly proportional to the uncertainty that the new skill is a better way to meet a challenge. Once convinced of that, the curve rises sharply. Think about that the next time you take a dip in the swimming pool of learning. The Intangibles, an article penned by my friend from Saskatchewan, Guy Schultz. As curlers, we all know that success at any level takes more than mere talent, knowledge of the game, or finding the four best players available. There is usually some unseen element which will take a player or team to a more consistent level of winning. Those unseen tangibles are what tend to make the fine line difference. 
Venus Flytrap of WKRP in Cincinnati fame may have put it best when he said, quote, When will we ever learn that the most important things in life are rarely things we can see, taste, touch, or smell? They are the invisible things that make the most difference in getting ahead in life, unquote. The Intangibles The intangibles are as varied as our personalities, or in the fact that no two drops of pebble spray on the curling ice are the same. Well, that's what they taught us in rural Saskatchewan in science class back in the 70s. It helps when your science teacher is also your curling coach. In this article, I want to explore some curling case studies on intangibles. These stories are either from Southern Alberta curlers or stories which have happened in the Southern Alberta Curling Association region. We'll explore a cemetery, the L.A. Kings, some curling preachers, a Schmirler story, and one of Calgary's always competitive teams. Kathy King and her first Alberta Women's Champions in 1995 talked quite openly about one of their key intangibles. The team was in Medicine Hat and on the verge of capturing a berth in the Provincials, which they would eventually win before attending their first hearts in Calgary later that year. They are a team which is big on emphasizing team building and chemistry. This was also the year the Chicken Soup series came out. Her team was reading the book and read a story of going to a graveyard and dealing with one's fears and insecurities and putting them to death, so to speak. In between games, the team ventured out and decided to have a little ceremony at one of the local cemeteries. They all wrote their fears and insecurities on a piece of paper and buried or burnt them as a symbol of not being controlled by their inner fears. The team felt that this simple exercise was one of the keys to their first Alberta title. This exercise helped the team focus on what they could control and not get caught up in little mind games that could have caused their fears to sabotage their chances for success. Whenever they would drive by a cemetery, it was a positive reminder of putting those fears to rest. A hockey story based in curling from the Calgary Winter Club. I was sitting in a Starbucks in Los Angeles reading the LA Times about a year ago and came across this gem. The LA Kings were underachieving, as usual at that time, and in danger of missing the playoffs once again. Kings coach Andy Murray was wrestling with how to create team chemistry to turn his club around and get them to play up to their potential. He felt the team would start battling for one another if they had strong feelings for each other. Being good, healthy men, he knew a, a group hug would kind of only make things worse. He came up with an idea of taking the team down to a curling rink and getting these players to compete in a fun atmosphere. Murray and some of his players said the it was the turning point in their season and it coincided with that curling outing when in Calgary before facing the Flames. The team went on to become the second most successful in LA King history as they upset the powerful Red Wings in the first round of the playoffs. 
Maybe we curlers could have an old-fashioned game of shinny to stoke the chemistry and competitive juices to improve our team dynamics. I compete in a national event nicknamed the Friars Briar to declare the national champions for clergy, a funky event that is approaching the quarter-century mark. Our Friars team had a major turning point back in 1995 and has finished in the Final Four and medaled all seven years since. And to think it all started with a friendship bracelet given to me by my nine-year-old daughter. I was in a pretty good slump and was consistently fighting myself over rotating my wrist at the point of release. Finally, while sitting in the hack, thinking terrible thoughts and contemplating early retirement from the game I love, I noticed the friendship bracelet on my wrist. So without thinking, I turned the little knot and lined it up with the straight part of my wrist that lines up with my thumb in the traditional handshake position. It was like Eureka! Lo and behold, I stopped risking my shots. I told my team about it, and we started throwing with a consistency we hadn't quite experienced before. I have worn a manly bracement on my throwing hand ever since as a subtle reminder. The Sandra-Schmuller team's first major conquest was at the Autumn Gold back in the early 90s. One of the biggest questions the team was constantly asked was how could they maintain such strong team unity and chemistry? It may have all started in Calgary. Whenever I crossed the walking bridge from the Calgary Curling Club to Eau Claire Market, I recall a story they shared about talking through team issues in the middle of that bridge between games at the Autumn Gold. It set a tone for their team. One of their intangibles was whenever conflict occurred. And the key word here is whenever, not if. Because they knew conflict was an inevitable part of life. Their team rule was not to let a conflict go by for more than 48 hours before dealing with it. They made a conscious decision to work on their relationships because they knew from observation and experience how important it is on the ice when the communication is flowing. Playing with a heart free from conflict creates a freedom and responsibility to take on ownership for each player. Easy to type, hard to practice. The little things that often go unnoticed. There are certain players or teams that you can play against where one can learn a lot about the nuances of the game if you choose to pay attention. Four years ago, one of our teams at Huntington Hills in Calgary had a rookie front end. We had tried to encourage them about good misses in an attempt to hit the broom. One night, we got absolutely killed by Lauren Danielson and his rink, who our former city club played on champions. Our team complained after the game that we had hit the broom more than the Danielson team and still got smoked. Why? Well, there were two clear reasons the Danielson team demonstrated so well. Their weight was always reasonably close, and when they didn't hit the broom bang on, they missed it smart and always gave themselves a chance to at least make half a shot or better. What a great lesson it was for our team that night. Our front end's mantra the rest of the season was, 
If we miss a broom, let's miss it the right way. It was a healthy turning point for our team that particular season. The intangibles are little things, often invisible, that will make a difference in improving one's game. You may never win a zone or represent your province or territory, but you and your team may graduate from C to D blocks up to B, perhaps. You see, success is a relative term, but each little step of success builds confidence which can spill over into all parts of our lives. I will always remember a senior curler in Chauvin in Saskatchewan who only curled in four or five curling clubs in his life, period. Whenever he played well, he had an extra skip in his step throughout the week. His wife often said he was more fun and romantic to live with when his confidence was up. The intangibles, you see, can be actually tangible. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed them uh, and found them interesting and hopefully helpful. That's the reason for the podcast in the first place. And by the way, if any of you come across something that you think the listeners to a pain in the glass podcast might find interesting, my email address is coachbill at hey.net. That's coachbill at hey.net. Make me aware of it. Uh, if you can send a copy of it, I will certainly recognize the author and the contributor. I want this to be as much as your podcast as it is mine. So, you know what I'm going to say. Wherever you are, good curling, stay safe, my friends, and of course, continue to think only those happy thoughts. <laughs>